What I do think may happen in our world today is that if I go up to somebody and my, my entry is to talk about their guilt, they may resist me. But I do think we can find common ground by talking about the decay and death that's in our world. And, you know, I'm using death in a, in a broader metaphorical sense rather than just talking about physical death, but this sense that things are broken and not the way that they're meant to be. And I think that provides uh, maybe a starting point that's more easily accessible and taps in to the emotional reality of a secular culture. Hey everyone, happy summer. Welcome to Ideology. Sorry for our absence last week. For those of you who anticipate a Monday morning release, for those of you here in the States, we are trying to sync up our summer schedules and it is challenging with all the travel. So we'll do what we can this summer. Uh, in fact, I'm sitting here trying not to uh, sweat on the microphone, trying to sneak in a workout right before the recording of this podcast. So thankfully, you can only hear me and not see me or smell me. But here we are, Drew, and we are going to take a fresh look at the gospel today and uh, contextualize maybe what has become a familiar message to many of us, uh, but maybe look at it in a fresh light in the context of our culture today. So without further ado, Drew, what are you thinking when I see here in the notes a fresh look at the gospel? Well, first of all, I would like to correct your previous statement in that I can see you and smell you, and so I will do my best to forgive my you apologies. Running, going for a run outside in Texas in June, uh, you kind of had it coming. Uh, but yes, uh, to get into our question, this actually originates um, in a, a mutual friend of ours who lives in France, Jenny, shout out to you. Um, she asked me a question, it was probably two years ago now, of how should we consider sharing the gospel in a purely secular context? So they live in Europe, and uh, but I think this is probably relevant to a lot of us, particularly if we're engaging a post-Christian or or near secular culture. Um, you know, and I recognize that we have a, a range of listeners who some this may be very much your world. Others, um, you might still be living in a place that has a lot of Christian influence. In a community of people with very little Christian influence, it does change probably in some way how we present the gospel. Now. As we get into this topic, I want to be really clear. I am not suggesting that the gospel message itself is relative, and what I'm suggesting is there are different needs within a society that provide entry points to the gospel that then lead to the fullness of the truth of what God has done for us. So please make sure we're all very clear at the start of this, this episode. I'm not suggesting that the gospel itself changes based upon the needs of culture, but what I am suggesting is how we present it may want to differ depending on the people that we're trying to talk to. So here's my overall thesis. A lot of our common gospel presentations start off by looking at the guilt of sin and then go on to share how Jesus paid the penalty of our sin so that we no longer have to carry that guilt. Now, this is an important biblical metaphor, and it relies on courtroom language, and that's where we get the word justification. And so in this sense, biblically, we are guilty and thus subject to the consequence of our sin. And then the gospel teaches us that Jesus justifies us, which means that he paid the penalty that we deserved so that we are now innocent and free. And I fully affirm this view of the gospel. I believe it's important, and I believe it's entirely biblical. But as we've talked about before, there are other metaphors that describe what Jesus has done for us. And if you think of it as a diamond, there are different facets that tell us what God has done. And I think in understanding our salvation, it's important to recognize that 
these metaphors need to be taken together to provide a holistic view of the gospel. I would say where we tend to get ourselves in trouble is where we limit our understanding of the gospel to one of the biblical metaphors and discount the others. I found in my own life that over time, I want to meditate on all these different metaphors, but it tends to be that in different cultures that we interact with, maybe one or two of them grab our attention or maybe tap into the needs of a culture at a deeper level, and then over time, you're brought into the fullness of what God has done. And maybe by way of a metaphor, uh, just to back up a little bit, Drew, you were talking about how the fact that we're not changing elements of the gospel here, but representing the gospel relative to the context we find ourselves in. And we don't have any difficulty understanding this when we talk about needing to learn another language, another spoken language, like uh, for Jenny, for instance, moving to France, spending uh, ample amounts of time learning the French language in order to communicate truth in the the native language, the heart language of the people that she's reaching. Uh, Similarly, within different cultural pockets, people uh, use just vernacular. Our speech changes from location to location as well as the dominant metaphors by which we understand the world around us. And so looking at you know secular culture as a belief system in and of itself, I know for our friends that are living uh, amongst Muslims or Hindus, uh, they are looking for inroads for the gospel within those contexts. And the same applies to anyone in secular culture uh, as well. Looking for inroads for the gospel bridges uh, within frameworks that would be readily understandable by the people who live there. Uh, And as well, the gospel is encased in a large narrative framework in the scriptures. And that, that message of uh, of redemption that you're talking about, Drew, the propitiation for sins, is at the core, at the heart of the gospel, but it's nested in a much larger uh, narrative scope. And so we uh, want to be sure that we are being holistic in our understanding of the gospel as well. So I wholeheartedly agree with how you're starting off this conversation today, Drew. So here's where this really impacts secular culture. If our typical gospel presentation starts with our guilt due to sin, how does that work in a society of people who do not believe that they are guilty? And so here, as far as I can tell, here are a few options we have. One, we can start by trying to convince people of their guilt. And so this would typically start, and there are some people who teach this, that I'm going to start by trying to inform people of God's laws and then show to them how they are not measuring up to God's laws and so that they are in fact guilty and then present the work of Jesus as the solution for that guilt. Now, personally, I'm not sure that that's going to be the most effective way to tackle this. I'm not going to say that God doesn't use it, but I am going to suggest that if somebody doesn't already feel guilt, it's hard to convince them that they are, in fact, guilty. Now, I believe there are probably a lot of people going out there that just, however it works with the Holy Spirit working upon their conscience, that maybe do carry that in some way. And so I can see that still being incredibly effective as the Holy Spirit's already prompting someone. Uh, Maybe a second option would be leading people into an encounter with God. And so we kind of forego the whole conversation and go straight to, we want you to meet with God. And there is something about seeing the holiness of God, of who he is, that then casts light on our unholiness or our guilt. And I I could think of the example of Isaiah um, in his revelation of God, where his response is, woe is me. And I think that's a I think that's a powerful option. I think, you know, ultimately to me the most effective way to communicate Jesus is to allow people to meet with Jesus themselves, and then that sheds light on the human condition. But there's a, a third solution that I'd propose, and that is that we start with something other than our guilt. 
And let me break it down this way. Historically, in Christian theology, we have two or maybe even three great enemies that oppose us. The first is sin, the second is death, and then maybe for a third bonus, it's Satan. And all three of these, you can find examples in theology where they become the starting point. So actually, in early Christian theology, the enemy was Satan, and a lot of the gospel presentation was Christ's victory over Satan, and then our deliverance from the demonic, from the demonic influence and the powers and clutches of Satan. And maybe that's actually another um, powerful means of sharing the gospel for people. And I think it's interesting in a society where a lot of the early Christians were oppressed, even physically in their slavery, and for sure spiritually in the context they lived within, that was the entry point for them, was finding the freedom that comes with Christ over and against the oppression and they've identified that ultimately in the power of Satan. And maybe that's another alternative, a fourth alternative for our modern time. Obviously, starting with sin is where a lot of our gospel presentations begin. I'm thinking of four spiritual laws or things like that, and that is a wonderful way to communicate the truth of what God's done for us. But then there is this third enemy that is death. And here's what I'm wanting to explore, is what would it look like to use this as the entry point for sharing our gospel presentation? And here's what I'm suggesting, is that even though people may not feel guilt due to their sin, I believe people are very aware of the effect of death, which originates in our sin. So I'm not going after your guilt, I'm going after the death and decay that's in our personal lives and in our world, which I believe is a significant part of our secular culture, is people's awareness that things are not the way they were meant to be, that we are surrounded by death and decay. And to me, this is all the more striking when our physical circumstances don't reflect that. And we actually have more power over sickness. We have less food instability, at least in in Western culture. We have more easy access to shelter. We are subjected to less war or physical oppression than our ancestors were. So in many categories, death is receding in our world. Yet, I think that is all the more reason why it's so striking that people are so aware of it. Because what's happening is... When, when our immediate needs are cared for, we're forced to grapple with the condition of our own soul. And in Christian theology, that's where we believe this problem of death originates. It's not something purely external to me, but it's actually something within me. And no matter how much peace, freedom, wealth, food, whatever other thing I need, no matter how much of that that I have, if I don't deal with my inner condition, none of it matters in the end. And I believe this is what's being exposed in such a significant way in secular culture And it's all the things I've talked about in the past of loneliness, the decline of life expectancy, um, the rise in self-harm, the rise in all sorts of disorders. You know, all of these different things, uh, I think, could maybe be a manifestation of this in our culture. Yeah, that's a little bit of what I was alluding to earlier, talking about the fact that the uh, redemptive gospel is nested in a a bigger story. Uh, Going back to Genesis 1 and 2 and the three relationships that God created mankind to operate within, the relationship with God himself, our relationships with one another, and the relationship with the created order. And that sin actually fractured all three of those relationships, not just the God-man relationship, but introduced death and decay in all of those settings. And that the redemptive work of God actually repairs or unifies, or to use the language in Colossians and Ephesians, it reconciles all things in Christ, the undoing of the fracturing of all of our relationships. We were, you know, we've, we've talked so much about the fact that we are relational beings, when we looked at biblical anthropology, that we are created in the image of God who is a Trinitarian being, and 
being relational is at the core of who we are and the the fracturing of those relationships. And then, of course, the physical death that occurs because of sin and that the work of God is not just to, like you say, er eradicate the guilt of sin, but the overall effect of our rebellion against God, repairing our relationship with God, our relationships with one another, our relationship to the created order, and even the the trend or the consequence of sin, uh, which is death itself. That's an important point, that sin, death, and the demonic are all necessarily linked together. So you can't take what I'm saying and exclude two of those um, to just focus on one. When we talk about death, we then have to introduce sin and eventually recognize the demonic or vice versa, however, whatever your entry point may be. But what I do think may happen in our world today is that if I go up to somebody and my, my entry is to talk about their guilt, they may resist me. But I do think we can find common ground by talking about the decay and death that's in our world. And, you know, I'm using death in a, in a broader metaphorical sense rather than just talking about physical death, but this sense that things are broken and not the way that they're meant to be. And I think that provides uh, maybe a starting point that's more easily accessible and taps in to the emotional reality of a secular culture. One way of looking at this is an understanding of sin. And this is actually a listener question that was submitted to us. And, you know, uh, we have thought of maybe doing a full episode on this, so stay tuned. But sin in Scripture is used in a couple different ways. Um, it, I would say at the core, it refers to the condition of the human soul. And so uh, maybe the best way of thinking about this is it refers to a terminal illness that is affecting every part of who I am. However, sin is also used in Scripture to talk about specific behaviors. Perhaps a way of looking at that is that these behaviors are manifestations of sin. And so sins are manifestation of sin, to put it that way. So maybe the behavior of anger towards another person or some type of misplaced sexuality or greed or vanity or pride or whatever that, whatever that is for different people, those are in fact manifestations of what's going on within us, which is the condition of sin that exist in the absence even of an overt manifestation in some type of external behavior. So to put that in another way, even if in some certain moment you're not manifesting sinful behavior, apart from Christ, we still have sin at the core of our being, and at some point that's going to work its way out, and just like a terminal illness in the body, it's going to affect every facet of who we are. So if you're having a hard time tracking with that, let me um, use an illustration. And Today, I'm going to take something like a serious drug addiction. So take like fentanyl addiction or, you know, something else like that, where if you are addicted to this, it is bringing death into your life, like no matter what. And I would say the odds are not good. You know, um, fentanyl is, is maybe an extreme example, but most likely if it's left untreated, it'll eventually kill somebody if you continue on with this behavior. If you've walked with somebody who suffers from this type of a drug addiction, it affects every facet of their life over time. Now, what's tragic about it is it's something that a person does to themselves, but it's not something that they're able to stop it as a general principle without some type of intervention, whether it's miraculous or through the help of other human beings. And so in other words, there is a condition in the person that leads to behavior that they cannot stop 
that behavior is warping every aspect of their life. It's changing their physical body. It's affecting their relationships. It's leading them to do things that they don't actually want to do. It's preventing them from doing the things they are called to do. And eventually, it will lead to literal death in their body. So it is a terminal condition if there's not some type of salvation that's granted to this person that is destroying them from the inside out. Now, on top of that, it's also illegal. So the act of consuming these narcotics is against the law. But here's the kicker. Even if it's legalized, and that's starting to happen in a few certain places, the legalization of this behavior does not take away the death of this behavior. So whether or not a person feels guilty, at one level, whether or not you could even say it's their fault, you know, maybe they were introduced to it in a way where they didn't give consent, they were too young, or it was against their will, or you know, maybe it was one bad decision. You know, however they got there, it doesn't change the fact that that's where they are, and then the result of that is leading to death in their life. And I think that's what makes this a, a good metaphor for sin. So is there guilt? Yeah, there is guilt. There's guilt at not being the person you were called to be, at having these behaviors in their life that are preventing you from living the fullness of who you were created for. And people that deal with addiction, I think, are racked with very severe guilt because of this. So there is guilt that goes with it, but at the same time, there's also this problem of death. And so I'd suggest that that's a good metaphor for sin, that if you don't deal with the condition of the soul, if you don't take care of what's going on within us that's leading us into all this destructive behavior and working death in our life, that whether you feel guilty or not, you still have this problem and it's being manifested in the world around you, and there's really no way to prevent it. And what makes the sinful condition of humanity so, so bad is that for drug addiction, there is hope, there is treatment, and you know any other illness, actually, we can maybe find examples, but the condition of the human soul is untreatable apart from some outside divine intervention. And so if you take what I'm saying and go through Romans, you know, I'm considering Paul's words in Romans 5, 13 through 14, he's talking about sin and talking about the gospel, and here's what he says. Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. Now, this is a really great example of Paul's run-on dense sentences that are hard to track with. I think what Paul's trying to say here, though, is, is pretty similar to my metaphor. He's talking about sin, first and foremost, as a condition that brings death into the world. And then he's introducing the law as God intervening to show us his ways that lead us out of sin. But what he's also demonstrating is, if you read elsewhere in Romans, that the law in and of itself is not sufficient to overcome our terminal condition. So in other words, there are some group of people that have the awareness of God's ways, and thus they are said to be sinning because they are transgressing what God has called them to do. But even over those people who don't know the ways of God, who don't feel guilty, who don't have any context for God's law or God's ways, nonetheless, they still deal with the death that comes from sin. And so, you know, maybe looking at this another way, maybe in a culture that has a deep awareness of God, that message of guilt resonates because we know that we're not doing the things that God has given us to do. But over a culture that does not have an awareness of God, the message of death resonates because death reigns in that culture regardless of whether or not we feel guilty. And I think that's the point of what Paul's getting at here. And of course, the solution to both cultures is the same. It's the finished work of Jesus dying on the cross for our sin and being resurrected into a new life. It's the same solution, but he's highlighting different facets of the problem. So in other words, to use my metaphor from earlier, sin is like fentanyl addiction. 
regardless of whether or not it's a crime or whether or not you feel like it's a crime, maybe to say it more specifically, it doesn't change the fact that eventually it's going to kill you if it's not dealt with. And so regardless of whether or not somebody feels guilty, it doesn't change the fact of what their condition is going to lead to if there's not some type of intervention. And what I'm suggesting is that people, even if they resist the feeling of guilt, I believe are maybe even acutely aware of the fact that things are not the way they're supposed to be in their life. As you're talking, Drew, I'm I'm thinking of Carl Truman, and we've talked about him at length on this podcast, his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And he really opened my eyes to the thinking of uh, like Jean-Jacques Rousseau and John Locke and this idea of the tabula rasa, that we are born blank slates and we are corrupted from the outside in. I'm just curious, this is kind of on the fly, it's in the notes, but just as you're talking, how would you discuss this with somebody who, yes, recognizes the death in society, the brokenness in the world, but doesn't attach that to individual brokenness, that they wouldn't suggest that that is emanating from inside themselves. They would suggest that that, that death is embedded in the systems, you know, in the class stratification or you know, whatever other association people have come up with throughout the years to explain the phenomenon of sin in society. Uh, how, how would you kind of talk about that if somebody doesn't possess an acute awareness of the death within themselves? Does that make sense? I think that's still going to be the central point is that regardless of our entry point for sharing the gospel, it does lead the person to say, where am I in this? And if a person is unwilling to consider that they are the source of the problem, that the problem is not purely external to themselves, then I think that's going to keep them from experiencing the fullness of the life that God has for them. Uh, Maybe to put this in biblical language, I think this is the sin of pride. It's our refusal to acknowledge that we are, in fact, the problem. And in Scripture, this seems to be the thing that kept people from coming to Jesus. And so from a Jewish perspective, the ones who were the furthest from God, the tax collector, the sinner, the demon-possessed, the Gentile, these were the ones who encountered God because they were the ones that were most willing to confront the fact that they needed a Savior. The ones closer to God ended up being the ones who resisted Him, and it was because of their pride. They weren't willing to accept the fact that they needed God to rescue and to save them. And so I don't see how that would be any different in any of our cultures. And so whether that's confronting our guilt, whether that's confronting death, if we're not willing to recognize that we are the source of our own problems, then, you know, sadly, I think for most people, what ends up happening actually is that the the pain of death just expands in their life. And it gets to the point where, you know, I think we've all probably seen this with people, that at some point it becomes too much to bear. And somebody that's resistant today, three, four, or five years from now, is actually quite open because eventually they can't run from the fact that they are the source of their own problem. But also, as we see in Scripture and in examples in the world around us, there is this obstinance that any of us can fall into where we just refuse to acknowledge it. And ultimately, I think that's at the core of even what sin is, is we have to be willing to confront it. You know, and in fact, I I think, you know, if we take my addiction metaphor from earlier, um, every addiction um, program that I know of starts with somebody confronting the fact that they are an addict. And I think that's actually pretty similar here is I have to confront the fact that I have a problem. And until I do, I'm not going to get the help that I need. Yeah, that's helpful. And this is a tangential thought that just popped in my mind as you were talking, but I was thinking of some individuals that I know who, for whom wealth insulates even further maybe their awareness of the fact uh, or, or their contribution to the brokenness of this world and 
be a conversation for another time, just how Jesus talks about how it's difficult for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of heaven. And this entry point, as we're talking about the gospel here, of not just guilt, but death, and, and truly how wealth can insulate from that reality in somebody's life. Random thought, but um, moving back to your notes here, how then would you kind of reformulate, you know, I think in the South we have some different tools, thinking of uh, Billy Graham's uh, Four Spiritual Laws, so how would you kind of reformulate the gospel within this framework that you're talking about today, shifting from the guilt of sin to the consequence of sin being uh, death, decay, the fragmenting of relationships, and so on? I mean, I'm just going to take a stab at this. Others can can work on it as well as you're sharing your faith. But yeah, I'll do four revised spiritual laws. And again, I want to be really clear. I'm not suggesting that the other is wrong. I'm just suggesting that we may need to modify how we share this message, which is fundamentally the same message with different groups of people, depending on where they are at. So for somebody who uh, maybe is less aware of their guilt, but um, is perhaps more open to talking about the fact that things are not the way they're supposed to be. I would start the same. God created you to experience the fullness of his life. And I think this is an intriguing thing. Why do people feel like things aren't the way they're supposed to be? If the world is the way it is, why would we consider that it could be otherwise? And and I wonder if that might be this vestige of the Imago Dei that still resides in all of us, that there's something within us that knows there's more than what we're experiencing, that there is a fullness of life that we have not tapped into. And I, and I think that first point helps to highlight that. And we can point to this reality that there is purpose and significance to who you are. There's a fundamental dignity to who you are that God's desire is that that is realized in this life. But my second point is that you have a terminal condition that is bringing destruction into every aspect of life. And whether we see it or not, this is at work in all of us. And biblically, you know, the, the scriptural language for this is sin. And, you know, I would probably take the time to articulate that to somebody because I think most people's view of sin is a list of do's and don'ts. But I would, I would pause to, to refer to this and reframe it as, no, this is actually a condition that we all experience that leads us to do all sorts of things. And that might help make it uh, more accessible to people. Of course, it does manifest in specific behaviors, but it starts with a condition of the heart. Third point is that Jesus conquered the death of this world by being resurrected into new life. And the accent here is on the resurrection, even though, of course, it talks about the crucifixion. So Jesus paid for our sin, but we're also saying that he defeated death. And his resurrection marks the beginning of a new humanity. And so we're highlighting the central work of the cross and the resurrection. Um, Just as an aside, I I think a lot of times we talk about the cross in our gospel presentation, but we forget the, the resurrection, which to me is equally fundamental to the story of what God has done for us. Now, as part of this this third point, I would certainly take the time to mention that the death of Jesus provides the cure for our sin. Just like if I'm, I'm using the traditional four spiritual laws, I'm going to take the time to talk about the resurrection, even as I talk about how the cross paid the penalty for our sin. The last point is that you can enter into new life by uniting yourself to Jesus, that he is healing your condition and he wants to transform you from the inside out. And the way that you unite yourself to him, you have to confess. You have to acknowledge that your way isn't working. And then the biblical word repentance, which means to change your mind. There's a turning that takes place where you are acknowledging before God that your way does not work, it does not lead to life, and that's the point you were bringing up earlier, Mick. You have to come to that realization and make that confession. And then what you're doing is you're putting your faith in Jesus. And what that means is that you're saying, you're going to live his ways now and receive this offer of new life that he provides. 
And that ultimately leads to baptism, which is that public confession. But then I'd also highlight the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit that transforms you into the person God designed you to be. And so within this revised forward spiritual laws, it is a complement to um, what Bill Bright produced and the, the existent four spiritual laws. I, I don't see it as being fundamentally different. I just see it as looking at the same thing, but maybe from a fresh vantage point based on the people that we're trying to minister to. And with each of these points, this would be my entry, but then I would make sure I describe the other side of it in a gospel presentation. And then, uh, and then I think it is important whenever we share our faith and share the gospel that we describe the fullness of what God wants to do uh, of leading us into his new life. Yeah, I think there's an additional conversation here too, Drew, even as you continue to talk and as you're wrapping this up, that there's some apologetics here that could extend this conversation uh, in, a, in a different direction or provide some more some more background um, as we talk about sharing the gospel in secular contexts, as we talk about the, the nature of reality and the existence of God and the nature of good and evil and, and just talking about helping people square with the reality of their own brokenness. It's a deep question that that touches on the fundamental nature of what it means to be human and be in relationship to the world, in relationship to other people, in relationship to God. And so just saying this out loud that maybe we could circle back with some um, conversations around apologetics in the future as we talk about contextualizing or uh, interpreting truth in secular culture. And like the famous example of Paul uh, at the Areopagus in Athens, leveraging the worship of the idols there, leveraging their the knowledge of their own poetry to point back to the Creator, to point back to Jesus incarnating and manifesting the Father to us. And so maybe that's just a teaser for the future. Uh, thank you, Drew, for prepping content as always. Uh, thank you, our listener, for hanging with us as we'll have somewhat of an erratic schedule likely this summer. Uh, so I won't say uh, we'll catch you next week on Ideology because I'm not sure exactly when these episodes will drop, but we will catch you next time we release an episode here on Ideology.